Yes. I begin here. I will do what I was asked for, but I will, uh, Buddhism, blah, blah. But nonetheless, I would like to somehow connect it, link it to what we were talking, to the line here. So, uh, uh, speaking about what I did already, that's one, uh, days ago, you remember what I said, I want to share these thoughts with you. I hate this expression, this is California, you know. The biggest thing you can do is share your experience, you know. Uh, ah, sorry, I'm evil, I cannot resist this. Let me tell you a dirty story where John Kobjek almost killed me. I was explaining Lacanian formulas of sexuation once. You know, the idea being what John Kobjek and she chaired the session, advocated that it's a very beautiful theory that, uh, you know, Immanuel Kant himself opposes uh, uh, masculine and feminine identity as sublime and beautiful. I mean, it's disgusting male chauvinism, of course. Like, women are beautiful, men are sublime. This means, of course, all the greatness is, you know, on which side and so on. No? Uh, but then John Kobjek did something tremendous. Did you already hear about Lacan's, okay, I do it in my book and repeatedly in my tearing with the negative, in my big fat book, less than nothing. Uh, this Lacan's so-called formulas of situation, the paradoxes of symbolic order, if you have a totality and all, it must be grounded in an exception. If there is no exception, then it's non-all. You cannot totalize it and so on and so on. So the genius of John Kobjek, this was already 25 years ago, almost, was to link this Lacanian formalization of sexual difference not to beautiful sublime, like this anti-feminist way, women are just beautiful if you want this abyss of deep sublimity, you turn to men, but to two modes of the sublime. You know, that Kant distinguishes between mathematical sublime and dynamic sublime. Mathematical sublime is quantitative sublime. It's simply too much to grasp. And uh, dynamic sublime is uh, the sublime of intensity, qualitative, like, I don't know, an explosion of energy, like, I don't know. I, I experienced once this, and let me advise you, it's not nice. I mean, it's romantic to look like, were you already when the lightning strikes, but really close to where it strikes, you know? I tell you, it's not nice, you know? Because, like, you are in the shit, you know? It's no longer the nice distance. Okay, so, incidentally, what you mentioned, uh, you, the young uh, Che Guevara, <laughs> you are writing, no, I'm sorry, it's my nature to be evil. Are you writing the, the diaries you go on with the, the diaries? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you have what? And now you are a star. What do you have now? Uh, Porsche diaries or helicopter diaries? <laughs> sorry, it's in my nature to be evil. <laughs> yeah, sorry, seriously. What you said, you know, about that Italian, you mentioned what opera excess, no? That, uh, I think that in music you find, I read about it, a wonderful example of this. Italian versus German sublime. German sublime is masculine, even if Wagner all the time has this bullshit about, you know, this 
like is all the dying excess, but I think I've proven this. Uh, and even I was in Pirate once, they invited me, I debated with Syria. This idea that, this is a nice rereading, that you know basically just the story of Tristan and Isolde, no? Wagner's, yes. That uh, the proper way to understand Act 3, you know, you know the story, like these ridiculous misencounters. Tristan is dying, when Tristan dies, Isolde comes, and then she dies, they don't die together. Uh, one French director who is very traditional, but here he was very good, he died, Jean-Pierre Poel, you must know it, I refer to it all the time, it was a stroke of a genius. His reinterpretation was that Tristan dies alone. That, you know, after Act Two, they are discovered at Lovers, and that to be cynical, Isolde said, okay, I had my fun, now I play it safe, let's play with my husband, no? And the idiot Tristan is there waiting for her. So the reading is, but it's done so well in a cinematic way that Tristan waits for her, gets crazy, and then the only way for him to die is with her. So, you know, the very last song, so-called Liebestod, the dead, that this is Tristan's imagination, fantasy. It's very nice how she cannot die without her, so the only way to die is to imagine her, and ah, you know why it may surprise you, why me and Talent, but you defend Wagner. We know he was total shit, anti-Semitic and so on. But I claim what he was doing in his operas is precisely undermining his own uh, ideology. Okay, but I will not go into this now. Just to make the point uh, that it's such a wonderful staging, this, it, it plays precisely with object A as, you know, when do you experience object A? Precisely because it's a pure, how should I put it, fantasmatic embodiment of the void. Uh, uh, now, sorry if I refer in a very primitive male chauvinist way to femininity, but isn't it that when a woman feels attractive, I mean, maybe this is a male, uh, a male myth, I don't care, but how to say the Italians like this, se non è vero e ben trovato, no? it's a nice theory, screw it, screw or not, that it's, uh, you probably don't know it, it's secret beyond the door, a nice late uh, Hollywood Fritz Lang, not so late 48, I think, melodrama where a woman is attracted by a guy and there is a wonderful phrase how she's seduced. She says to her friend, another woman, you know, the way this guy who looked at me, I felt that she sees in me things like sexual potentials that I even wasn't aware that I have them, you know, this idea that uh, object A is what you see of you in the other's gaze. Like, when you see fascinating gaze on you, you know, okay, so let's go on. Uh, something like this, it is staged, it's wonderful. Tristan is dying, the scene is in colors, the usual, the trees, that island where Tristan is dying, Cornwall, <laughs> and he then looks into the camera, okay, camera, the, 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 the hall, the podium, and drops, is it, and then is all that comes, but you know how, as a kind of a outgrowth artificially lighted behind him, and he never looks at her, 
It's as if she's looking at our gaze, you know, <coughs> seeing her. And then it's done so depressively, wonderfully, because after Isolde dies, sings the last notes, there is already in Wagner one, two seconds of a break, and then like 10, maybe 15 seconds of orchestral music. That one, two seconds break is used by Wagner, is used by Ponel as visual equivalent to fade out, fade in. So that when Isolde stops singing, she's really like this in a totally artificial light, the focus, but behind him, Tristan is still with us, you get fade out, the stage gets dark, and then two seconds later, she must have run away very quickly, you get back and you see Tristan alone, all the scene is grey without her lying dead, no? I mean, it's so efficient, it's so well done, but again, this intensity that is male intensity, male sublime, like, you know, it's too strong, blah, blah. I much, I'm so sorry, I don't give it here to play it for you. I much prefer the Italian, this quantitative sublime. You find it in Rossini, in a typical area of Rossini. I've written about it, for example, you know, the best known one from Figaro, Largo al Factotum, or even a better one, I claim, from Cenerentola, the evil father. It's, it is a wonderful intersubjective complication. It's the best staging of obsessional satisfaction, because Lacan provides a very precise definition of obsessional neurotic. For Lacan, obsessional neurotic is someone whose object of desire is the demand of the other. Now people say, what does this bullshit mean? It's very simple. I remember from my mother. My mother was always complaining, you are just exploiting me, you are sending me on errands, this, that. Then, of course, evil as I am, I was like, fuck you, so nothing. And then she was immediately desperate. What, am I of no use? Please allow me to do. You know, precisely the object of eternal complaint was her object of desire. You know, in this quite literal sense, my desire, if I am, and my God, I am an obsessional neurotic, the object of my desire is your demand. Like, and what, what, this is then, Rossini stages the most beautiful, at least two areas, uh, coordination, he renders it in this area of New, uh, obsessional neurotics full happiness. Uh, for example, in Cenerentola, okay, Largo Alfa Totum, they figure here, figure there, we all know him, but this one is it's a, a father of the two evil daughters, you know, and then the Cenerentola, how do you translate this in English? I don't know. The Ash lady, uh, you know, Cenerentola. You know, sorry? Yeah, but you know which <laughs> story I'm talking about. The one, the ugly, Cinderella. sorry, Cinderella, my God, I'm so stupid, yes, okay. <laughs> so you have the father when he thinks that the prince will marry one of his two daughters, staging a small show for the daughters, it's wonderful, imagining how will it be when one of his daughters will become the queen. How, of course, what he imagines is that all the sleazy guys around will come for him to intervene and he will demand, like, 
he drinks about being the focus of corruption. Okay? And it's done in such a precise way. First, he describes the situation. I will be sitting there, people will approach me, a lady flirting, oh, can I go to bed with you if you provide a post for my son, another guy giving you pieces of gold, and so on, and so on. And, and then he imagines the whole dialogue of how he answers them, oh, maybe, but I don't see enough money there, maybe, okay. Then comes the first subjective twist where he fakes, and that's the sublime, that it's too much, you know. He starts to think, no, all of you demanding of me this, that, <laughs> sorry, I cannot, I cannot, you know. He dreams about being overwhelmed by demands, and then it's so beautiful, just the last twist is, when he says, oh, what a happiness, I'm so happy to be there. And with Figaro, it's the same, you know. First he complains, Figaro here, Figaro there, everybody wants things from me, no? And then the end is, oh, what a happiness to, to be this. I prefer this, uh, ah, what happened? Okay, I didn't lose my thread. What happened with John Kobjek is this one. People said, this is bullshit, this is just abstract logic. Give us one example where this really works, like, give an example of these two logics of sublime, which would have anything whatsoever to do with sexual difference. No, haha, they talked with the wrong guy. I did it. It was so nasty. I gave the example which, well, all I can tell you is, without being too indiscreet, that I asked many ladies who are my friends, and I wasn't doing this with them. And they confirmed it. Okay, now let me be a little bit disgusting. When a man does cunilingus to a woman, and a woman says, yes, yes, more, more. I was li literally told that there is a usual, the standard miscommunication. Woman, according to the formulas of sexuation, uh, means this in a quantitative sense, like go on quantitatively more, while typically men means she wants me whatever, to bite her or what, you know, to be more intense, more forceful. And this is the typical misunderstanding. Now what then happened is that, because this was in California, is that John Cobbett, who is a little bit prudish, very nice lady, got pale and looked at me very evil. And she should have learned that you don't do this with me because she provoked me into a slightly tasteless outbreak. I told her, what is it, Joe? Was this not your experience? We are in California, share your experience. And then we had this, the ultimate film noir dialogue. You know, she told me, Slavoj, I mean it. I will kill you. You know what was my answer? I love you too. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is elegant. Long theory that, you know, any idiot, it's easy to be polite in a polite way. You are just polite. It's easy to be vulgar in a vulgar way. It's a little bit more difficult, but every British gentleman or lady can do this, to be vulgar in a polite way. You know, this kind of a cold politeness, which can be even, and that's incidentally for me the problem with political correctness. That, uh, for example, I remember when blacks, you no longer, I mean, it's preferred even now, I think, to say, I think it's racism, even worse. Instead of black, to say African-American. 
But the problem is this, is that in this way, a whole new area of racist humiliations in open, done in a much more elegant, but for this reason, much more aggressive way. First, for obvious reasons of content. You know why I'm against these hyphenated identities? Uh, African-American, Indian-American, and so on. Because it always, here we are again at the logic of the master signifiers, it always presupposes a zero level without hyphen. Like, Englishmen are not English-Americans, they're just Americans, you know. So, uh, but okay, what I wanted to say is that uh, I remember 20 years ago when this was introduced, you don't say black, you say African-American. Do you know that there is a whole series of rather tasteless, but some of them even appear to me a little bit maybe funny jokes made of this, where simply in movies with wonderful effects, they replace uh, black with, you know, do you know that early horror movie, one of these wonderful, modest horror classics from early 50s, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Now, all my friends are saying creature from the African-American lagoon and so on. But I'm serious here. You see, this is the danger of this politically correct strategy. You play with fire. You think you censor it, but, you know, it's precisely the logic of enjoyment that we mentioned. You prohibit it, censor it. Oh, my God, you, you explode a whole new terrain of, of humiliations and so on and so on. No? So, again... Uh, 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 yes, now, back to, back to you, what I, uh, 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 speaking about this Italian, as it were, uh, excessive uh, uh, effect, what I uh, appreciated, I wanted to ask you seriously, was this done on purpose if you talked with the director, I'm talking about, how do you really translate that? Ito mama también, like, I will fuck also your mother, or what, like? Anche tua mama, yeah. Uh, Does it mean this, like? That I, I also did it with your mama. Yeah, did it, yes, I also fucked your mama. Yeah, yeah. It's the most beautiful movie. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, don't we, didn't most of you have, my absolute dream I had it is, when you are in elementary school, early teens, to have an attractive teacher lately, and to do it with her. Isn't this the, the absolute <laughs> dream of all? But what I mean, now I'm more serious. In this film, that's what I wanted uh, seriously to ask you. Obviously it was done with purpose, but did the guy really know? What I like it so much is that the film also in itself, if you just tell the story, is simply the two young guys, the lady, blah, blah. But isn't it that, in a, okay, not too refined, but nonetheless very nice way, why very nice way? Because it always remains a background. Mm -hmm. It's this political violence background. Now, I remember you with your friend, when you didn't have time just to screw the lady, you are on the street, and then isn't it you pass a place where you just see how police is beating some people in yeah. the back? You know, I like this, how... The film never makes this direct vulgar step into, oh, now we will confront this. It just remains this uh, kind of a political corruption and violence background. 
It's already at the beginning because isn't it clear that was it, don't take it personally, was it your father or the other guy's father who because of corruption had to escape the other guy? Ah, uh, uh, so yours is clear. Okay. <laughs> no, but now I'm serious. What I, sorry, what I like so much is this elegance, you know, that they didn't go then into this vulgar open social criticism. You know that it remains just a kind of a <laughs> ominous shadow. You know, which is also nice. I forgot the title. There was a movie about <coughs> four friends growing up and their love adventures in an American city. Sorry, forgot the title. If you are very interested, I have it in one more by books. I can find it. You know this growing up maturity films, which is done in such a nice way. You, if you look the film the first time. It's done so on the edge of subliminal that you even don't notice it. How all the time there is some kind of a hint, shadow of some impending catastrophe. For example, they found an abandoned uh, pool of water in an abandoned construction site and they jump in, swim, but then you see that, my God, it must be dangerous because just beneath water there are some remainders of some steel construction and all the time that the boys are jumping in, you know, you fear like, my God, will someone hit that or whatever. Or the same, whenever they cross in this small, I mean, this is, uh, the, the, the film takes place in a, this American small town through which a highway runs, this desert highway, just two lanes with a lot of long traffic, I mean, uh, large, uh, long direction traffic. So, you know, whenever they cross the street, they just miss a large track, you know. It's wonderful and all the time, but it remains totally in the background. It's kind of a... And then, maybe it's a compromise, but it still works for me. You wait, you read this, like, oh, when will the big catastrophe hit? It doesn't. At the end, they finish their studies. It's happy ending, but then you get the surprise, you know, after the final credits, because this film takes place in early 60s, they say, that guy died in Vietnam, that guy was murdered in Europe, and you know, it's kind of, you learn only at the, at the very end, but I like very much, because this, because I claim, let me give you two further analysis from me, I claim this, this is what comes close to what I was improvising, you remember, apropos uh, Van Gogh and Moon, this dance, you know, so that this is, it's clear that for me, movie becomes art. You have a certain narrative to say, but it's not just transparent narrative. It's as if at the very level of the texture of film, there must be some density which counteracts the narrative, but it must be done not in a vulgar way. You know, you know which film I often use, I'm sorry if you know this theory, what for me is one of the masterpieces of uh, American cinema, uh, 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 I already mentioned it, I think, Robert Altman, Shortcuts. The official story of the movie is, of course, some kind of stupid leftist, I'm a leftist, but I hate this kind of stupid leftism, stupid leftist critique of American alienation, the silent despair of these middle-class suburban lives, and so on. But it's not all so <coughs> dark. Nonetheless, while I watched the film, I had this 
indescribed feelings that it didn't hit me as such a dark feeling. And then I got it. I spoke with Fred Jensen, who now wrote a wonderful text on shortcuts that it's the forum itself. In what sense? You know what's the narrative structure? This, uh, I think, eight, nine parallel stories and the totally contingent encounters, which can be sometimes catastrophic, sometimes not, and so on. And Fred Jensen gave me this idea. Now, you, the two evil. <laughs> who like Deleuze, uh, he told me that this is this very Deleuzean, this almost reminded, he told me Fred Jameson too, Spinoza read by Deleuze, you know, this optimist ontology, its open process, multiplicity, meaning, or rather sense, is not teleologically guaranteed, but sense comes from all these contingent encounters, so what I like is this, that you don't have, the, in this usual vulgar socialist realism way, at the end, a guy, it, this would be the lowest, if he were to include, uh, by he I mean Altman, some guy, I don't know, poor, homeless, black, Latino, who would at the end says, oh, like, who would have spoken the party line, you know, oh, these are all alienated. No, no, you don't need the direct positive message. Positive message is already in the very form. And Frank Ramson has a very nice idea of how there is nonetheless one moment at the end when a family shares bread, a cake, and he reads this as a kind of a optimist proletarian a communion, the lefty. Okay, but let me go on. Another example which I use in my books, which is much more vulgar, but works also. For a long time of this tension, for a long time I was intrigued by the fact of... Uh, as it called, uh, The Sound of Music. Why was it such a mega hit? Because, you know, if you... I mean, we all say, oh, whatever, uh, what's that bullshit called? Such a boring movie. I mean, another... Uh, Avatar, I hate Avatar. <laughs> I mean, did you see Avatar? I simply don't get it. It's a boring movie. The storyline is so flat, non-interesting, you know. Okay, but now, you know, if you adjust it to inflation, then the two hits are, I think, one is still Gone with the Wind, and two is, let's be serious, Sound of Music, you know. <laughs> okay, uh, did you see Sound of Music? If you are not, be ashamed. I, I, I pardon you if you didn't see some bullshit, Eisenstein, whatever. <laughs> Fellini, but if you didn't see some... Okay, uh, I claim that it's precisely a similar tension. Maybe you know my idea, I read it. About how... The official story is to make you feel good, no? The official story is honest Austrians fighting the Nazi threat. But, I claim, look closely at gestures, how people are dressed, and you get basically the opposite message. The Nazis, you know, there is a bad Nazi guy who wants to take over on behalf of the Nazis, the Salzburg Games. He's dressed like a corrupted Jew. I mean, I know because with my friend Tudi Aloni, I was watching the film, and he said, no, but we are dead, we Jews are dead. So, uh, you know, it's this typical non-German associated uh, uh, co dress code associated with, in, with ordinary people, with corrupted Jewish bankers and so on. You know, this tuxedo thing, uh, these <laughs> cigarette, uh, cigar holders, whatever. And the Austrians are clearly painted as, like, small is beautiful fascists. 
not this big aggressive fascist, but this, you know, small, deeply rooted. And I think this is the genius of the film. It, in order to make you feel good in front of the big other, your, your anti-fascist resistance, no? But at the level of its texture, it tells you exactly the opposite story. Which is why the movie has a symptom. I love it. You know that the movie has, sorry, one of the legendary mistakes. By mistake, I mean uh, 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 this, how to call it, gaffes or whatever, when something is wrong, continuity. You remember that uh, Dore, me, blah, blah, when Sister Maria takes the children, and then she plays, she, Julie Andrews, with some oranges and buys oranges. If you don't believe me, and the movie takes place in uh, 38, okay, put it on freeze and stop when you see the box with oranges. It says they're product of Israel. I mean, no, the revenge. No, but seriously, I've written about it. You know why I am really so absolutely fascinated by that film? It's the most obscene Catholic propaganda. In what sense? I'm sorry if you know the story. I would like to show it to you. We don't have time. Okay, you all know this. You know which is, for me, the absolutely obscene moment in the film? Okay, at the immediate level, if you saw it. I don't know what's with me, but whenever I see it, I flash red. I cannot. You remember, like, I think about 40 minutes into Sound of Music, when children have to go to sleep, and they, they sing that, Auf Wiedersehen, Goodbye, and so on. I find this so obscene. <laughs> Sorry, I cannot watch it. But there is one which is maybe not so obscene, but it's more. Uh, 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 are you aware, first, what type of obscene film this is beneath the surface? You know, the first song is the nuns sing, uh, what should we do with Maria, and so on. Well, the point of the film is she needs a good fuck. No, it's absolutely open. No, it's, and then comes the absolute part. You remember how, it's quite shocking, how, you remember this, the scene, the evil fiancé of Baron von Trapp comes and convinces her, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so Maria is afraid of her sex awakening and escapes back into the nunnery or whatever. And that's the crucial scene. Uh, she goes to Mother Superior and says, listen, I, I am still in love with Baron. I don't know what to do. Please punish me. I need repentance, whatever. And then comes the absolute obscenity. The, you remember that famous song, the mother superior starts to sing back to her with a clear message, almost literally. No, church, uh, convent, nunnery is not a place of escape. Go back, seduce the guy, fuck him like crazy. And the song goes like, you remember, climb every mountain and so on and so on. For the, the one that I just finished shooting uh, three months ago, the second part, Pervert's Guide to Ideology, we wanted to do it, but we were afraid because there were censorship problems. They told us, uh, uh, copyright also, no? The idea was, uh, my God, this could be so easy. Me, but I am like this with the movie dress. They made the perfect priest dress for me. So I am, okay, father superior, not mother. And a young priest comes to me 
with a similar complaint. I think all the time about fucking young boys, what should I do? And then in the dark voice that I start to sing back. Climb every young <laughs> And then we even we already shot it, but it was again fuck that imperialist, the copyright problem. You remember the beginning of the film where you have camera up there from the airplane, helicopter, approaching town, and then to Julie Andrews, who runs the end, the hills are alive with the sound of music, you know? And we already had a deal with, uh, how is it called? With, uh, with Salzburg police, because we lied them. We told them this will be the propaganda for the film, blah, blah. And they gave, Sophie told me a very good price, like just, my God, this was peanuts. Just, I think, 1,500 euros for one day full use of police helicopter, you know. The idea was this one. I'm like Julius, <laughs> not exactly, Andrews, running there, and the camera approaches it, and then we, I start with a dub's voice to sing something like, you know, the hills are alive with critique of ideology, and so on, you know? And then, because if you look at credits, then they, the music, orchestral, goes into that other famous song, blah, 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 Wiener Schnitzel, whatever, some of my favorite things, you know. And then we already had it written that somebody dubbing, I mean, not me singing, would then we would go on with that melody like, you know, uh, police torture, investigation, forced confessions, these are the few of <laughs> Fuck it, imperialists prevent it, you know. But again, uh, you know what's the message of that one, of that scene? Climb every mountain. It's precisely this message that you get from, from some priests as the ultimate perversion. The message is not it's prohibited, but come to us, just fake that you are one of us and we will cover you, then secretly you can do whatever you want, you know. It's this much more obscene call, I quote, I think in, in Puppet and the Dwarf, Chesterton, who got this, in a wonderful way, Chesterton said that uh, the only way today to maintain the spirit of pagan hedonism is to protect it by Christian prohibitions. That the whole point of Christian prohibitions is to establish a space for, which is why, for, you can do whatever you want, which is why, uh, uh, this is the most intelligent Catholic propaganda, you get it sometimes. Like, their real message is not sex is sinful and so on. Their real message is, even some priests play with this openly, almost openly, okay, is, uh, and they are in a way right. If you want just direct, brutal pleasure, it will become mechanic, you will not enjoy it. You need us as the screen to really enjoy sex. So the point is not too much sex. The point is you must pretend to be Catholic, you know. And it's true that both big versions, Catholicism, Protestantism, involve this type of dialectic. The Catholic version is basically you can do whatever you want, just confess at the end of the week, you know. And here was the genius of Catholic Church in early 15th, 16th century, late 14th. You know, this is what shocked uh, 
speaking about retroactivity, no, like punishment. Ah, they were geniuses. You know what shocked Martin Luther, not King, the old guy, anti-Semitic and so on, no? No, but he was honest, you know, first he was for Jews, because he thought Jews remain Jews because Catholic Church was corrupted, they were right. His message to Jews was, now I did order in Christianity, now you can join us. The Jews didn't, and then he became <laughs> Okay, but what I want to say is that, uh, you know, this is the utmost perversion. Do you know that the church was selling like crazy, how do you call this? You pay for your sins. Indulgences. Sorry? Indulgences. Indulgences, yes. But you know that they make this dialectical move into retroactivity. At the end, they were selling even for big sins. Indulgences for future. Like, let's say, I don't know, you are my daughter. As a good father, I wish all the best for you, but I cannot stand another guy to take, you know, so I want to kill you better than. So, uh, I go in advance, I buy the indulgence, and then I know I'm already covered, you know, <laughs> the ultimate. So, okay, so that's the Catholic logic. The Protestant logic is even better. You know what's basically the Protestant rule? You can do whatever you want, just feel a little bit guilty, you know, that's... But in Catholicism, typically you don't, which is why Nietzsche preferred Catholicism, no? Because, okay, but uh, again, going back to this. What? That I don't know enough about it. Yeah, pretty much the same thing. You wish something but how does here... Okay, we don't have time to go into this now. I'm cheating again. But you know what really interests me? How does it... Because some... I am spontaneously, as a leftist, more Shia. But some Sunnis try to convince me that don't, no, no, Shia are more filthy Catholics or whatever, you know. Yeah, because of Imam Hussein and his suffering and that whole narrative and... Yeah. You know, the back, the, yeah, this, yeah, this. yeah, the original trauma. But in Islam, there's no original sin. So it's a fundamentally different thing. In fact, when they proselytize to non-Muslims, yeah, yeah. they're at a superior position because they're outside of the sin. Uh, yeah. But once you become inside, it's a point system. Yeah. But nonetheless, how would you... Okay, we don't have time to go into it's madness. But now it would very much interest me, you know, I know rationally, rationally in the simple sense, reading books, no? What's the difference between Shia and Sunni? But, where put it? I don't really know. You know what I mean? I know, but that's what I know. This is the official story, no? But what does this mean, Libidian? For example, one thing I know, because a friend of mine gave me one. You know that they are, this is also another element for Shia or the Catholics, you know? Because you know that in Iran, they don't have this absolute prohibition. I have a plate with young Mohammed. I mean, you can paint yeah. even Mohammed yeah. in Iran. But the, the friend told me, try to enter this with this plate, Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. and it's the last time I see you. <laughs> yeah. You know, what is absolutely prohibited. So they are much more relaxed with regard to, for example, no? Mm -hmm. This iconoclasm, all that bullshit, but they are much softer, I was told, you know? Mm -hmm. But look at Iran. Iran is a Shiite country, but we celebrate Nowruz as on New Year, not Muhammad's birthday. Sorry, you celebrate? We celebrate Nowruz as a New Year versus Muhammad's birthday. Uh -huh. Because in other Sunni countries, it's Muhammad's Yeah, yeah. So where is your heart? Shia or Sunni? Okay, it's too intimate a question. <laughs> no, okay, let's drop it. Okay, okay. Let's go on. We are losing. <laughs> no, sorry? 
Can we go back to Buddhism? That's where we started off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you want to flash me? Fine. We will get to Okay, let me go see. Can I see your question? That's where it lies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, but you know what's so tragic? We are close to that. that how the same lie repeated itself as it were in Buddhism, you know. You have these three stages. You have the original Buddhism, which is closest to what's called Hinayana, then you have Mahayana, which is for me the end, the regression, and then you have the, the Tibetan kind. Okay, but immediately we go to that. I just want to finish this time to say that uh, in even in vulgar films like this, no, I love this, in, and Hitchcock is full of this, you know. We, again, we don't have time to go read that book. We tried to develop there a lot of it that I co-edited, uh, whatever, uh, whatever you wanted to know about Lacombe, but in there to ask Hitchcock or what. How, with Hitchcock, it's always that the form itself, movements of the camera and so on, tell their own story, which tends to undermine the official narrative, and that's what makes the texture of it. No? Okay. Uh, let's go to where we were yesterday, and with this, don't worry, I will come to Buddhism. Uh, 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 another line, very brief, I would like to develop here. Uh, uh, you remember, when I talked, apropos vertigo, about that crack in space, where it's as if from another spectral domain. I think, I'm sorry if some of you know this line, but I think that this domain of neither life or death, but undead, however you call it, spectral, this begins with Kant, and this is why basically Lacan says very strangely, once Lacan was asked, okay, if we do a little bit of primitive history of ideas, where does it begin? Psychoanalysis. No. He meant, not just, of course, with Freud, but, you know, like, what are the origins? And, of course, Lacan was totally opposed to the idea that in some this Schopenhauer, whatever, deep will, irrationalism, he said in Kant. In Kant's not even practical reason, critique of pure reason. Where? And I have a nice answer, I hope. I'm sorry, some of you know this line, but it's nice. You know that uh, Kant distinguishes there between you have a positive judgment, negative judgment, and what he calls infinite judgment. How are they structured? Positive judgment, you assert a predicate. I am alive. Or I am dead. You assert a predicate. Negative judgment is, of course, negation. I am not dead. Which means I am alive. But as Kant puts it in a very nice way. <laughs> infinite judgment is also negation, but a totally different one. In negative judgment, you negate a predicate. In infinite judgment, you assert a non-predicate. And you will say, okay, fuck off, what's the shit? Isn't it the same? No, it isn't, and I will give you an example, and as you may expect, my example is from, uh, is from uh, 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 Stephen King. Okay, no? You know, let's take it. I am dead. Okay, I'm dead. I am not dead. Okay, it means I am alive. But, you know this basic expression from horror movies. What if I say, what if I don't say, I am not 
undead. What if I say I am undead? Uh, you know what this is, totally different. It means you are the living dead. It opens, this is why Kant calls it infinite judgment, because it opens a third domain of indistinction where I am undead is not simply I am alive, but it's an immanent negation. I am alive as dead. And that's the Freudian drive, I claim. What? I develop this in my books everywhere, but... Uh, uh, in every, every dichotomy, there's actually a, a, an infinite... A, any place you've got a positive and a negative, there's also the infinite... Um, Give me an example. Because I'm a woman, you know in what sense, symbolically. Like, the main feminist idea is that women cannot think in abstract terms, you need to give examples. Well, I don't know if it's holds for women, but I am like that. So, give me, when I, you I say in everyday life, can you give me, I want I mean, to steal it from I, I you. I guess any choice. So, like, if you want a drink of water, you can either have it or you cannot have it or you can have something or, else. I guess, yeah, 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 but here it's precisely, the point is, it's not simply something else. We are still, the coordinates are still those of just alive or dead, you know. It's not something else. It's life reflected within death, so that as dead you are alive infinitely. And what I claim is that Lacan's name for this undeadness is Lamella, which Lacan calls, says it is, drive itself as an object. And what I want to say is that, just to give you a hint, it's crucial. What Freud calls death drive is, did you notice, if you read Freud carefully, it's Basically, it's exact opposite. It's Freud's name for immortality. Death drive is, think about undead. Death drive is something which persists, goes on beyond life and death. Which is why for me, I always use this example, which I already mentioned. The nicest example of death drive are for me Tom and Jerry cartoons and so on, you know. You slice them, you kill them, they return again and again. Which is why Freud linked death drive to Wiederholungszwang, compulsion to repeat. It's this spectral entity which insists beyond, beyond uh, life and death, uh, which is why uh, here I had a problem with, friendly problem with, the guy who comes this Thursday, A.B., <laughs> but you know, because, you know, for him, immortality is the great eventual immortality, no? And for him, being towards death is just uh, this human animal, you know? But I claim that if there is a big discovery in psychoanalysis, it's precisely this idea of obscene immortality. You know, not the great, oh, immortal idea, but the terrifying immortality, where the whole problem is not how to become eternal, but how to die. And this is coming back to Wagner. This is... Did you notice this? This is why there he really was a proto-Freudian, I claim. This is what is so great in Wagner's operas. Take already from the first one, Flying Dutchman. What does Flying Dutchman want? He is precisely condemned to eternal life. He wants to find the woman with whom he can die and achieve peace. Let's go to the end. Amfortas, the... Fisher, Fisher King, sorry, in Parsifal. It's exactly the same. He has this strange wound, which is the same as for me, you know, which is for me at least, apart from animal stories, the best uh, 
Kafka's short story. Do you know that story, Country Doctor? Yeah. Where? Okay, it's much more complex. But basically, a doctor goes to a hunting house and finds a young boy who has a big, disgusting wound somewhere here. And that wound is open, life, chronic need. And as Kafka says very precisely, this wound is not threatening him with death. This wound is what prevents him to die. It's something that just goes on, a kind of a obscene, undead life. This is, this is the death drive. And uh, again, <coughs> all around in Wagner, you have precisely this problem of how to die properly, how to avoid being immortal. Immortality is presented as the ultimate nightmare. And you know who was aware of this? People usually don't get it. Uh, Kierkegaard, when he speaks about uh, sickness unto death, he means also, read him closely, what he basically means is the exact opposite. He says that it's not that we are afraid to die. What we are even more afraid is immortality, because as he says, if we are just a species on earth, we die, okay, no problem, I die, nowhere, it's okay. But the point is, what if we do have an eternal soul? That's the horror. That's difficult to accept. And uh, which is why I was quite shocked. You see how even in totally shitty films you can find pearls. Did you see, I had the misfortune of seeing him because of my small son, uh, did you see part two of, uh, of uh, the first one was the Clash of Titans, the second one was the Wrath of Titans. It's much worse. Also the women are not. In the first one there is that Gemma Arterton who is nice and sexy. I even inquired with Ray Fiennes, how is she? She told me you don't have a chance. She has now a beautiful young Italian uh, husband. I said, okay, life is not perfect. Sorry, <laughs> let me go on. No, but now I'm serious. There is a wonderful line there. If some of you saw the movie, but don't see it because of this, it's shit, it's much worse. Uh, uh, when uh, gods debate among themselves, I think it's precisely Ray Fiennes, that is to say, how do you pronounce it, Hades, Hades. Hades, yes, who says to Zeus, and it's a wonderful reversal of Heidegger, maybe even, I don't know, I should ask Ray, that the scenario writer was some intellectual who planted this in. He says that we gods, if the plan of the enemy succeeds, no end we die, he says that People don't die. They are immortal in the sense of even if they, humans, even if they physically die, they survive in tradition, big, big, as we, big other is here. But basically, now I translate the guy into Lacanian. No? Basically, he says, but with us gods, because we are big other. And when we die, big other also dies. We are really immortal. You know, when a god dies, there is no human trick. I die, but I live for eternity through tradition, myths, or whatever. And it's a very nice theory, I find it. That, yes, Heidegger was right to say mortals and immortals, but he got it wrongly. It's the other way around. Humans are immortal. Gods are truly, radically mortal. Okay, Another point I want to make, just to connect, yeah, 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 it will come to your fucking Buddhism and so <laughs> well, uh, uh, You know, uh, 
this is also another nice point, how to read Lacan. What is so great about Lacan is how he all the time uses, returns to the same phrase or example and reinterprets it all the time. For example, from already late 40s, I think, his really early writings, Lacan repeats, desire is the desire of the other. But it means absolutely different things. And we have here, that's why I want to tell you this, a wonderful illustration of the basic Lacanian triad, imaginary, symbolic, real. You know, to understand this, let me give you a very simple example. Chess. The symbolic are the rules. The imaginary are all these how we identify figures, king, queen, whatever. You know how you can get the gap between symbolic and imaginary? Are you aware that all this, we call it a king, a queen, whatever, fortress, it's just to make it attractive for us. All that really defines a king is which moves he can do. And we can also put it general secretary or just a logical operator. You can see here how symbolic identity is just a figure which can, you know, what's the rule? Only one move in each direction and if he is lost, you are fucked up. <laughs> the game is over, no? But you see, imaginary is then all that we put on it to the cloak on and the real would be the simple radical externality. You play chess, the real is I come and with my evil stupid smile I kick the table <laughs> and fuck off, it's over, even if you, if you were winning, no? Uh, so again, let's go through this trick. Uh, how am I, yes, so I, you will see that I'm not cheating. How am I coming to Buddhism here? Because I claim that, and I had a problem when I was in Korea with this, where they attacked me, some Lacanians there. There is a Lacanian group, not all of them there, although it's interesting that it's exactly in Korea, which is, as far as I know, the only Far East country where the majority is Christian. Did you know this? It's, I didn't know it. Uh, it's over 60%, around 60%, I think, they are Christian. Okay, but Lacanians are some people who claim Buddhism, and that Lacan basically is compatible with Buddhism. I think not. And I think it precisely concerns drive, object A, and so on and so on. Okay, let me, so we will come immediately to that. Let me just begin with this. Uh, first, for in the early Lacan, desire is the desire of the other, means simply envy, competitivity, and so on. I desire what you desire. It's this mirror, competitive, like what René Girard would have called mimetic, all the mimetic bullshit or whatever, no? And, but here already things get, and Girard knew it uh, also in his own way, complicated with Lacan. Here I think, and it's so strange that Lacan didn't do it. Here we should read early Lacan, this idea of desire is the desire of the other, the structure of envy, like, uh, and, uh, I had a wonderful example of this. I had a friend who is now a big Slovene analytic philosopher. He is a big, I don't want even now to talk with him, but I remember how uh, my ex-wife told me this. When this guy, the analytic philosopher in Slovenia was young, he wanted to seduce my 
not yet wife at that point. But what was so funny? This guy was so ethically disgusting, he had no constraints, which means he openly said what, if you are a gentleman, you don't say no. There was a third <laughs> philosopher who was a kind of authority for this friend of mine. And that third philosopher liked my future wife. But he didn't have time to seduce her, so he told these bad guy philosophers, do you do seduce her, I see she likes you, blah blah. No? Okay. Sorry for this complication. But the point is then, when this guy, the disgusting analytic philosopher, that's what I learned from my wife when she became my wife. She told me the story that he was making passes at her in a very brutal way, like, you know, simply embracing her, and that she was pushing him off, and then he says, but wait a minute, that guy told me you should, like, you know, he invoked that other guy as an authority, you know. How dare you? It's like, it's officially attested, you know, like, you should do, you know, I got, it's not like, it's not my desire, I'm just realizing the, the desire of the other, how dare you oppose, and he, it's so wonderful, he says it with such, Totally idiotic, I love this sincere surprise, you know. What are you doing? It's wrong, you know. Like, it's not that me, I want to fuck you, but you know, it's all the big art. So it, okay, so uh, that it is strange that what uh, Lacan doesn't do is to quote uh, uh, Rousseau was not an idiot here. You know this wonderful Rousseau's distinction, very Lacanian one, between what are the two terms? Amour de soi and amour propre, I think. That is to say, one is the honest egotism, and the other is this mediated egotism with envy. And Rousseau saw something which only today intelligent theorists of rational choice, ethical action see. That, you know, like, okay, let me put it this way. Stupid Catholics often claim that out of egotism, you know what's the standard Catholic criticism of our predicament today? Oh, old values, we neglected them, today people are just consumerist egotists, they all care only about their profit, well-being, and they claim, a Slovene big theologist likes to use this term, that the only ethics you can arrive at this level is a pack among the wolves, you know, we are all Wolves from Homini Lupi, but we say, okay, it's a little bit better if you make a minimal pack. No, but okay, and all that stuff. Uh, Rousseau was the first one to see, and it's a very deep insight, simple but deep, how there is absolutely no contradiction between authentic egotism. By authentic egotism, he means where you really care for your well-being and collaborating with others and so on and so on. But the origin of evil is not egotism. The origin of evil is this reversal when, uh, as I think the guy who just died, uh, Gore Vidal, put it nicely once, when he said the point of capitalist competition is not just that I win, the other has to lose also, you know. This idea that, to put it very simply, the other is not just the one whom you ignore to be happy. No, it means more to you to destroy the other than your own happiness, you know. You have obstacle to your happiness, but the focus 
of your interest shifts onto the obstacle itself. Like to give you an example of this logic, uh, in Slovenia, I think I already mentioned this to you, we are an evil nation. Envy is our principle. You must also have it. We have these wonderful sayings like, you know, uh, uh, a fairy, um, okay, magician comes to a Slovene farmer and tells him, uh, I will give you a cow, but I warn you, I will give to your neighbor two cows. You can imagine what's the Slovene farmer's answer. Rather kill one of my cows, but kill two cows of the neighbor. Or we have even a much more evil version. The, the guy says, I will do to you whatever you want, but remember, I will do it twice or give it twice as much to your neighbor. Swing farmer says, take one of my eyes. <laughs> and so on. So again, this logic of envy is not egotist logic. And from here, we should move further. I claim that it's not true that in everyday life we are egotists. Uh, Adorno already, even the good old Frankfurt School Adorno wonderfully developed this. How in our consumerist societies where, you know, literally you want what others want, it's very, maybe the most difficult thing is to be an authentic egotist. You know, because we are so much caught into this competitive logic, screw the other, and so on, and so on, what more matters. And uh, this is why, that would be my point, I did it in some ecological debate. We, you know, when ecologists, and I totally agree with them here, I mean, in principle, they struggle, but I don't agree with them when they claim that, you know, we are just egotists thinking about our well-being, not about our children, we should rise above our petty interests to... Uh, no, I think that precisely what we need for ecology is more healthy egotism. My point, and here I again, I would really like to ask him, I think I already even mentioned this here. For example, capitalist, a typical capitalist is in a certain perverted way, I know I already mentioned this here, extremely ethical. Okay, it's uh, what Alain Badiou would have said, pseudo-event, pseudo-fidelity. But it's still, like, what's a typical capitalist? He's not, no, I just want pleasure. No. A typical capitalist works night and day. He's ready to sacrifice his life, his family, neglect family, just that the capital turns over and so on and so on. It's typical, it's to put it in Badiou's term, the typical capital is not the egotist, hedonist, democratic, individual, materialist. It's absolutely a, a kind of a perverted interpolation to an event. Like, there is something for which I'm ready to risk <laughs> everything. So, again, we don't need any appeals. We just have to tell people, you are a hedonist, egotist, so please, really be it. You know? <laughs> So this would be the first meaning, let's go back, of desire is the desire of the other. That what we desire is, but and then we, there, here we can make all the variations. One is in my desire I imitate the other's desire. And don't underestimate to what extent uh, this works. Like, I had a friend, it's an empirical case, and I promise to you on Okay, I'm an atheist, I cannot say on gods. Then that uh, this friend of mine to whom this happened is not me. <laughs> uh, there was, uh, he heard that in a certain 
class, which he was then from the beginning, there is a beautiful girl. So he, when he joined that class, he immediately pretended to whatever fell in love, tried to seduce that girl. But of course, what made that girl attractive to him is the fact that she was, uh, she had this mythic status, she is the beauty, no? You know how he discovered it? It was in incredible. He got it, basically, I think, I'm not sure, like, he did sleep, blah, 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 and then he dropped her. And I asked him, what went wrong? You know what he told me? That he, dis that he was just told there is a fatal beauty in that class, he got the wrong one. <laughs> they made another girl. And it's incredible how when he learned this, he dropped this one. No. So literally, his desire was the other's desire. And don't underestimate this. Don't underestimate this. It may be an extreme vulgar case, but okay, this is it. Then we have the second meaning. This is imaginary. Imaginary mirror, mimesis. The second meaning which would have been the, the symbolic one. Where desire, and this is the standard Lacanian meaning. Desire is the desire of the other where you capitalize the A. It simply means what you desire. Not only in the sense of legitimate ways to desire, like what is socially permitted, but even transgressive forms are all prescribed by the symbolic order within which you live. The idea is that, you know, it's a very simple one. Precisely when you think, oh, it's all in my imagination, spontaneously. It's a complex symbolic structure which without you being aware of it, uh, regulates your desire. So simply, desire is not an intimate, simple authenticity, it's regulated by the big other. But then, in the late Lacan, desire is the desire of the other, gets more radical, it's not imaginary, it's not real, it's more, it's more some kind of, uh, how should I put it, some kind of, uh, a piece of the other, you know, the neighbor, even God, for example, the Jewish God is usually like, you know, where you have always this doubt, this radical opacity of the other's desire. What does the other want from me? Always it, sorry? Always trying to be impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, so you see how nicely Lacan does work here, no? It's how nicely it works in all three registers imaginary, symbolic, uh, real, and so on. So, let me nonetheless, okay, I cheated, but just a little bit. I will start with Buddhism, and we will be screwing Buddha then in the afternoon a little bit also. Because, uh, now let's go to, to uh, 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 yes, uh, 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 I must annoy you. One more thing I want to add to that, because it's also connected to this. You remember yesterday when I talked about, and I didn't finish the story, that stupid story, you know, I want coffee without milk, not co or coffee without cream, not coffee without milk. There is a further joke, I use it in last book of mine, so maybe you know it, but it makes the point, the underlying structure even better. I'm sorry if you know the story. Did you see that British movie with, uh, how is he called, my God? the British actor who plays uh, Obi-Wan ben, ben Kenobi, the young... Sorry? Ali Pence. No, no, the young oh, one. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Okay, this is one of his early films before he became a Jedi bullshitter, you know, when he was still the British working class hero, you know. Did you see the film Brushed Off? Yeah. It's a modest working class half comedy, half whatever. Okay, but did, did you remember that, I mean, nothing dirty is said there, but it's for me at least one of the most erotic scenes of invitation that I've seen. It's Ewan McGregor, the homeless minder, whatever, accompanies a girl who is a good one, although she works for the administration who wants to close down the mine. Matter. Okay, he accompanies her home to her apartment block in the evening, and then that's the entire dialogue. No sex, nothing dirty. She tells him, would you care to come up to have a cup of coffee, coffee again, coffee with me. He says, I would be glad to, but I don't drink coffee, no? And she says, no problem, I don't have any. Can you imagine a more open uh, sexual invitation, you know? And nothing happens. She offers something, then it's no. Then she said, we don't need it, okay, it's not. You know, they just, of course, because coffee is a pretext, but how? Look, the paradox is that you offer it, you negate it, but the result is not zero. The result is absolute desire, no? It's, if I may be vulgar, but precisely you shouldn't be vulgar, because if you are vulgar in the film, and that's how our communication works, it would have ruined everything. Like, can you imagine the vulgarity of she telling him it doesn't really matter because coffee was just a pretext for, <laughs> for what I really want you to fuck the brain out of me or whatever, you know? It wouldn't. And you know what's my point here? It's not only that it wouldn't, it would, that, it, it, it's not only that it would be vulgar, it would also, that's the finesse, ruin the effect. It would have been inherently erotically much less. I found this, again, a wonderful example. If some of you want to write something like Hegelian dialectical techniques of seduction or whatever, you know. Although I also constructed in my book an example where this would have worked in politics. I imagined a dialogue when United States were attacking Iraq for to discover uh, weapons of mass destruction. Then you know it. I imagined, like, you know, uh, Donald Rumsfeld is saying to Europeans, come, help us. Let's attack Iraq to get weapons of mass destruction, no? And we, Europeans, scary, say, oh, it's a problem, we don't have good equipment to discover weapons of mass destruction. And Ramsay said, no problem, there are no weapons. <laughs> it works perfectly, you know. And no, I will talk about him. To, to tell you another old story. <laughs> Fuck you, you will not get Buddhism. <laughs> no, you will, sorry. Uh, I repeated it so many times, but it's really beautiful. Rumsfeld, the great American philosopher, big contribution to epistemology. You know, you know, you know his famous line, don't you remember it? It was a shock. When he, precisely when he tried oh, no. to justify American attack on Iran, sorry, on Iraq, I'm just running ahead. Iran. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, although I spoke with a good friend of Foucault, and he told me, screw authentic, Foucault really went to Iran in Khomeini's times to fuck young uh, Shia, uh, Shia priests, and that's a wonderful type there. <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> but, uh, 
that uh, he says to he says I'm sorry if I repeat myself but it's rather, he says there are things we know that we know that we know and we know that we know them like I'm, I'm in Sasfe and I know that I'm in Sasfe then he says there are things that we don't know but we know that we don't know them for example I'm sorry I'm so evil you know that with the money that you earn here Wolfgang our beloved master goes for half a year to Phuket, Thailand, South, and have a house there, no? Okay, let's say, I don't know how many doors Wolfgang house in the South of Thailand has, but I know that I don't know this, no? I hope the spy here will report this. Uh, I could have given a much uh, nasty example of how many boys or girls <laughs> I'm polite. <laughs> Although I like to, you know what's my, once I was spreading rumors like this against, but you, and he was a little bit hurt. And I told him, listen, this proves that I'm a warm, nice guy. It would be brutal to tell you these things face to face. I don't want to hurt you, which is why out of politeness and my love, I only say behind your Okay, so again, or okay, to put a more neutral example. There are electric cars, which incidentally, do you know, that they cost, it's incredible, 110,000 Swiss francs, which means like uh, dollar is more like 120,000 US dollars. My God, you can buy a Porsche. Because of some problem, they are so expensive, these shitty small cars. Okay, let's go. <laughs> I don't know how many of them there are in this shitty city town. But uh, I know that I don't know this. No? And then he makes a complication. First step into philosophy, uh, Rumsfeld. He says then, but there are things that we don't know but we even don't know that we don't know them. And that was his ultimate justification for the attack. What if we know, he implied, weapons of mass destruction, those poisons, what type. But he says, what if there are even things about Saddam that we don't know, but we even don't know that we don't know them. You know, like some ultra weapons that we even don't know what to look for and so on and so on. And here you have the limitation of American philosophy. <laughs> Rumsfeld, did you notice how he forgot one thing, the fourth category. He has only things we know, and we know that we know them. We don't know, but we know that we don't know, and we don't know that we don't know. There is a fourth one, things that we know, but we don't know that we know it. And this is the Freudian unconscious. And that's why Americans were in trouble in Iraq. Because what they didn't know is precisely, for example, all the complex network of their own prejudices and so on, how they approached Iraq and so on. This would be, again, a nice definition of the unconscious. Lacan even uses the term, an unknown knowledge. Something you know, it. you know where you can find a simple example of this. It also goes with what I uh, called yesterday the objective appearance. Things the way things really appear. I will give an extremely simple example, but it will make the point. Let's say uh, you are you are an adolescent. It's the standard thing to hate your father. You think your father is a stupid, confused jerk, a loser, and so on. 
there is a great 99.9% possibility that you are probably right. <laughs> so what I want to say is that, but still, observe the same guy when he actually interacts with his father. And you will, as a rule, note something totally different, a kind of a love mixed with respect and so on. You know how you can even empirically, experimentally assert this? Uh, when a guy is telling you, oh, my father is such a jerk, blah, blah, just agree with him. Just tell him, yeah, it's incredible what a stupid guy your father is. He will immediately start to defend him and so on. So no, here is a nice example of how you make fun of your father, blah, blah, but what you don't know is that, okay, you really are tremendously attached to him and all that, all so that. So isn't this the same uh, yes? the platonic theory of anamnesis? born with everything we know, I mean, like, in a sense, is Plato like a Freudian? <laughs> in that sense? Oh, definitely, yes. Yeah. The, uh, although, again, okay, there are two problems here. The first one is, uh, how exactly do we understand anamnesis? Because, uh, uh, like, you know that here I'm more on the side of Kirchanti, no, okay, Kierkegaard wrote a wonderful book, it's one of his best. Uh, not uh, philosophical broken crumbles, fragments, no? Yeah. Where he precisely opposes Socrates or Plato tradition versus Christ. The idea is that Socratic universe, philosophical, is a universe of anamnesis. There is a truth, we have a deep knowledge, we have to back into ourselves to discovery. Like you know that famous Plato's experiment with a slave. We should maybe, where are my slaves? We should maybe repeat it with you. <laughs> know, I will ask you about a square. You know that Plato. <laughs> you want to play that game. Sorry. <laughs> what I want to say is that, but then for Kierkegaard, Christianity is not remembering. Christianity is repeating. It's repetition. It's event. It's event. It's wonderfully done. So again, on the other hand, you know where you have Lacan's wonderful reading of, I don't think it's already translated, in Lacan's seminar which follows ethics on transference. He goes there into this more, let's call it even Kierkegaardian repetition side of Socrates. Object A, Socrates as basically the proto-philosopher even. I mean, sorry, proto-philosopher in the sense that Socrates is the beginning of philosophy, but at that moment, something close to the position of the analyst happens. Which is why I think that even when Lacan attacks philosophy, it's a much more refined position, you know. It's like, psychoanalysis is not simply external to philosophy. It's the very core of philosophy, which philosophy, once it becomes a system of knowledge, has to ignore, obfuscate, and so on and so on. But, uh, but, okay, let's not get lost here. My God, a little bit of Buddhism. Okay, uh, let me go directly to the point, ethical point, and then from here we go to uh, then ontological problem and so on and so on. Because it is, in a way, connected precisely with your question. I quote Chester in my book, I think it's in Puppet and the Dwarf, where he provides the basic formula which is, and I agree, I'm on the Christian side here. Chesterton said something very simple. He said, okay, it may be wrong, but he does 
as an ideal type. Ideally, he is right in an abstract global sense. He draws the line, sorry, he draws our attention to this distinction between typical European, and he means the religions of the book, Islam included, whatever, uh, uh, statues of saints, whatever, and the Oriental, Buddhist and other, especially Buddhist statues of Buddha. And he says that the typical distinction is that in the West, truth, like let's say we are talking about the same someone who has a contact with truth. The truth is like we are, we are, we favor X-Files, you know, that they all say truth is out there. In our tradition, it starts already with Jewish experience. Truth is not inner journey. This is Gnostic bullshit. The elementary Jewish experience, which remains in Christianity, is that truth hurts. Truth is a traumatic encounter, a brutal... It, this is here I'm at Badiou level. No, truth is an event which hurts you. Truth is not this Buddha smile, I, I gain peace looking deep into myself. And then, uh, okay, uh, from here, then we should make a step forward uh, uh, in Buddhism is of course the most radical point of let's call it ancient wisdom uh, no, the point is only that I will have to finish quickly so I don't know how just I have many okay next point would have been Chesterton also says that are we aware how radically different the entire logic here is, in the sense that for Buddhist approach, okay, Buddhist, I use here abstract terms, it's not really Buddhism, it's what, but I'm so afraid of sounding as a racist, but let's call it without any disqualification, pagan approach, uh, you know, it's what you find in an extremely vulgar version, of course, in Star Wars, all that Jedi bullshit, or this idea of uh, don't get attached. The origin of evil is excessive attachment. Like, why did uh, Anakin Skywalker go wrong? Because he got too attached first to his mother. You remember in second part, I think, his first evil act, he kills the entire tribe. You know, and then to 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 Natalie Portman, no, to speak in normal language. You know, uh, so the idea is precisely this one: don't get too attached to worldly objects. No, this means more even people. Uh, but as Chesterton points out, the uh, this is then experienced as a fall. You fall into by getting attached. No. Uh, and here we should be very precise. Uh, this Buddhist view is not a view of another world. I agree here with those Buddhists who emphasize that it's totally wrong, brutally, in a vulgar way European, to read Buddhism as some kind of ascetic withdrawal and so on. No, you are fully here. Just you, how should I put it, freely float here. But you are not anywhere else. And maybe in the afternoon I will go into this house. 
I read in this book, I mentioned it to you about Francois Julien, The uh, uh, Tour and Access, a wonderful reading of how spirituality works in this sense in a totally different way, for example, in Chinese poetry or even in haiku. You know, the most famous uh, uh, haiku by the, the great guy Matsuo Basho, it's something like a stale water, Three, okay, I give you, three, you know how haiku is functioning, three lines, you know. Pond with stale water, a frog jumps, splash. And it's, this is the basic formula of haiku. You have the zero level, a state, then something happens materially, and then you have the pure event, splash, or whatever. Uh, I am an evil guy, when I was in Japan, a friend told me that, you know that, in a way of mocking tradition. But it's absolutely crucial that you take it seriously, in the sense that it works also for the real. They told me it's very popular as a joke in Japan. Now I hope this is true. They didn't make fun of me, but I don't care. It's such a beautiful story that to make fun of Matsuo Basho, they have an obscene version, like empty toilet bowl, I sit on it, splash. You know, I, I love this. You know why I love this? Because I think that if you are radically spiritual, you should have the force to abstract, obliterate the obscenity. And this is where I often had problems with, uh, like when I was in Beijing, I met one of their big guys, I had to be polite with him because he's the boss of Chinese Academy of Arts and he was financing my trip, I really spoke to the leftist, but he gave the money and he tried to make a big point immediately, I'm closing down, yeah. uh, uh, but you're not effective enough, if you really want me to stop, come in black leather and with a whip, you know, <laughs> yeah. no, seriously, that he told me, you know, for us, in the, it's like, you know, divine God is everywhere, even in the tiniest piece of dust, you know, all this shitty poetry, God is everywhere, no? And I told him, wait a minute, you are cheating. It's easy to take this example, innocent, no? I told him, would you agree if I tell you, let's say I'm a Nazi officer and I push the button which releases gas onto the Jews there. God is also in my button there, and so on, and so on. And he was uncertain, you know, how not to do it. So, but let's go more here. Okay, let's stop here. What I wanted to say is that here, really, we have a radical break in tradition which begins with Judaism and then Christianity, Islam, and so on. It's, I claim, precisely that which appears to Buddhist attitude as the origin of evil, I claim, which is the origin of transcendence of goodness. Our notion is that we are in this detached state and then we fall into something, get excessively attached. This excess which disturbs the natural cycle and so on, this is the event. But you, Alain, literally, you remember in his wonderful short book, uh, In Praise of Love, you know, he plays even with this word, it works in French and in English, not in most, I think, other languages. The word we use is to fall in love, fall, tombe. But, but and you must know the joke, I was telling it all the time. 
you know how with but how but you found the publicity where they say you know these new marriage agencies no? that we will enable you by finding the right uh, partner without you looking for it you just give us your data we will enable you to find yourself in love without the fall that's the horror you know okay here i stop we go on in the afternoon and okay